from deep inside your audio device of choice. I'm undergoing self-isolation. It's the only way to be. Just for the lack of stimulation. So come self-isolate with me. Well, to be honest, I have been self-isolating, but uh, I've left the uh, residents to come here to the uh, Louisiana Le Show Dome today for this broadcast. You're welcome. And um, and then I'll self-isolate again, so don't worry about me. But how's... Oh, um, before anything else, we have just or are just celebrating, observing the 75th anniversary of the first test of an atomic bomb. It was called Trinity, and it happened 75 years ago, right about now. And within weeks, we will be celebrating, not that many weeks, the 75th anniversary of the dropping of the first two atom bombs, one on Hiroshima, the other on Nagasaki, both in Japan, with whom we were at war at the time, and um, those bombs and the development thereof will be the subject of much of this program coming up. But first, how's your jaw? Has it dropped yet? BBC says we're going to have a jaw-dropping global crash in children, not on children. You don't have to. No, it, it, pop, it is a population thing, not a child-crossing thing. But it's supposed to have a jaw-dropping impact on societies. They're quoting researchers saying that. Falling fertility rates mean nearly every country could have shrinking populations by the end of the century. And they're not calling this good news. Researchers at the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation say the global fertility rate nearly cut in half to 2.4 in 2017. And their study, published in The Lancet, which is a British medical journal, Project it will fall below 1.7 by 2100. 23 nations, including Spain and Japan, are expected to cut their populations in half by 2100. If the number, the fertility rate, falls below 2.1, the size of the population starts to fall. In 1950, women were having an average of 4.7 children in their lifetime. Different number, different women. Researchers expect the number of the people on the planet to peak at 9.7 billion in the middle, right around the middle of this century, before falling down to 8.8 billion by the end of the century. We have been hearing 9 to 11 billion by the end of the century for much of a century. Most of the world is transitioning into natural population decline, says Professor Christopher Murray. I think, he says, it's incredibly hard to think this through and recognize how big a thing this is. We'll have to reorganize societies. We'll get to that in a minute. Why are the fertility rates falling? It's not sperm counts. It's more women in education and work and greater access to contraception. It's the gals. The gals are running the place. Japan's population, I mentioned, will fall from a peak 
uh, about in half. Italy, equally dramatic crash from 61 million to 28 million. Who's going to eat all that pasta? They are two of 23 countries, Spain, Portugal, Thailand, and South Korea, expected to see their population more than half. That's where Dr. Murray says it's jaw-dropping. China, China, is expected to peak at 1.4 billion just in a few years before then going back down by half to 732 million. India will take its place. 183 out of 195 countries will have a fertility rate below the replacement level. Now, here's the BBC's take. You might think this is great for the environment. A smaller population would reduce carbon emissions as well as deforestation for farmland. You might think that. But here comes Professor Murray to say, except for the inverted age structure, more old people than young people, and all the uniformly negative consequences of an inverted age structure. He's worried because he has an eight-year-old daughter. Who pays tax in a massively aged world, asks the BBC. Who pays for health care for the elderly? Who looks after the elderly? The uh, professor, Professor Murray, says uh, countries have used migration to boost their population and compensate for falling fertility rates. We will go from the period where it's a choice to open borders or not to frank competition for migrants as there won't be enough, he says. Now, let's just stop for a moment. If we're not going to celebrate this, let's think about it for a moment. We've been told up till right about the start of the pandemic that our future is increasingly one without jobs, thanks to automation. Now, it looks like Humanity is shrinking to fit. Where, who will be paying the taxes, if not the workers? Gee, maybe the companies that develop and run and own the automated processes that do the work. Yes. <laughs> I'm saying if, the, if we're supposed to um, look to a future where the humans can migrate more, maybe we should also look to a future where the taxable income migrates less. But when you look at the causes of all this, it's clear that the economic and social structure of the world we're living in was created by the, uh, the repression of women. Isn't that nutty? Hello, welcome to the show. They're gonna put me in the movies They're gonna make the big star out of me We'll make the film about a man that's sad and lonely And all I gotta do is act naturally Well, I'll bet you I'm gonna be a big star Might win an Oscar You can't never tell Movies gonna make me a big star Cause I can play the part so well Well, I hope you come see me in the movie And I know that you are plain to see Biggest fool that's 
Ladies and gentlemen, one of the things we're not talking about a lot these days is uh, something that was predicted to overhang all of our futures when it broke upon the scene, living in the nuclear age. Uh, We have other problems these days, it appears. But um, my guest today on the program is, is bringing that somewhat fearsome fact back to our attention with his new book, The Beginning or the End, Greg Mitchell, who I was just reminded was the editor of Crawdaddy. That was the un-Rolling Stone back in the day. Um, he's written for The Nation, covered WikiLeaks for The Nation, uh, written 12 books of nonfiction work, including uh, a uh, book with Robert J. Lifton on the subject of the nuclear thing called Hiroshima in America, and uh, a second book on the subject. So this would be his third and uh, the beginning or the end is about the making of a movie called The Beginning or the End. Greg Mitchell, welcome to the show. Um, this is a fascinating book, and it's about this subject that uh, I'm actually kind of hooked on, which is the relationship between uh, government and the media. And uh, this was a film about the making or the the, the process of the making of the world's first atomic bomb. When when did all this start? Well, this was the first movie on this uh, subject. Uh, they started um, about three months after the bomb was dropped, which will remind people was 75 years ago this August. Mm. So we're a major anniversary here. <clears throat> and it actually, to, to put it forth briefly, it all, it all came about because of Donna Reed, I'm sure you you remember Donna Reed very well. Yeah, um, I never I never watched the show, but I always watched the opening. So you should not see. even not even from here to eternity. No. Mm. Oh, not for wow. Okay. Um, anyway, she she got a letter from her former uh, high school chemistry teacher who was embedded with the Manhattan Project in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and he wrote to her saying, uh, "Could she help get a, a big budget Hollywood movie made?" warning the world about the dangers of continuing down the nuclear path to, you know don't build bigger weapons don't build more of them uh control the bomb and the sort of urgent frantic 
letters to her. He, she was a starlet at the time, I guess we would yeah, say. Yeah, she was. Uh, she she was she was actually about to appear with Jimmy Stewart in It's a Wonderful Life. Mm. Um, she was not. Uh, she then won her Oscar for uh, From Here to Eternity a few years later. But uh, in any case, uh, her husband was an agent, so he was able to go to, with a producer to uh, Louis B. Mayer at MGM. Louis B. Mayer said, uh, this sounds fantastic. Uh, this is going to be the most important movie I've ever made, and uh, let's get going. So, um, you know, they got going, and um, I was able to trace the all the scripts at the Motion Picture Academy out there and letters and outlines and everything else and was able to trace how from that very hopeful beginning, and it was kind of kind of be kind of you want if you want to say uh, anti-nuclear uh, start the movie was slowly transformed into pro-bomb propaganda over the com- following year and it came about largely because MGM gave script approval to General Leslie Groves who was the head of the Manhattan Project and to President Truman himself so the uh, the movie ended up when it was released being uh, quite the opposite of what it was uh, supposed to be at the beginning what it was inspired by. So the book is really about uh, how that happened. And, and in a way, it's uh, this is symbolic of what happened in America at large, where uh, we, thanks to media suppression and government uh, cover-up and so on and so forth, we went down this, uh, you know, 60 years of a nuclear arms race based on, you know, hidden information and, and propaganda. I have to say, as a denizen of the of the show business industry, uh, movies that end up 180 degrees away from the way they started out doesn't absolutely shock me. Yeah. <laughs> it seems mm-hmm. to yeah. be part of the process. But this, as you make clear in the book, this was uh, a matter about which the scientists particularly felt very passionately and very deeply. This, I'm, I, I think you set out in the book, is is the result of their having glimpsed the results of uh, the bombs being dropped on Hiroshima yeah, and Nagasaki. Yeah. They lived in, a, in an, a, I guess, in a kind of cosseted world where they're focused on the physics of the matter and the human results of the matter really weren't apparent to them until the, that time. Is that your right. sense of it? Yeah. Well, they were, you know, many of them didn't know they were working on, on a music, munitions project. They were thought they were splitting the atom and um, developing what, you know, has become nuclear energy mm-hmm. ever since. So they were, uh, many of them were surprised when they uh, they found out that it really was a bomb and that it was dropped over, uh, you know, two Japanese cities. The secrecy uh, wasn't the tip-off to them? <laughs> that was the... Yeah, I know. So on that level, some of them were just shocked that they, they'd been helping to develop this. Others were or not others were cool with it, and as as you know, certainly a majority of Americans uh, uh, supported the use of the bomb, and they were they were told that the, it, it ended the war. It was the only thing that could have ended the war, and uh, it had to be done. And um, you know, don't think about the the civilians who died uh, too much. So it was all part of that um, that you could call a Hiroshima Hiroshima narrative mm-hmm. that the use of the bomb was. Um, was really what saved us, and um, and so the movie, uh, you know, like like I said, it sort of started out uh, raising questions about that, and in the end, uh, went uh, you know went in the complete other direction. Now I I'm not a a total uh, historic film buff. That that role would be filled by my lovely and talented wife. But I really had never heard 
of the existence of this movie until I read the book. Is <laughs> yeah. that is that just me? No, no. Um, many are in that uh, are in that same position. However, <laughs> it is it is shown on Turner Classics uh, uh, fairly often. In fact, I'd be surprised if it's not shown in the next couple of weeks. Um, are you arranging it for to be? No, sh- I should. Yeah, I've, I've not been invited to introduce it, so that's <laughs> uh, not a good sign for yeah. me. But. Um, and it's called, I don't know if it was clear, it is called The Beginning or the End. That's the same title as my book, but mm-hmm. the movie is called The Beginning or the End. The, the other kind of amazing thing was uh, was that the uh, as the the book uh, lays out in a, in a uh, quite, quite good length, I think, is that there was a competing movie being developed by Paramount, by Hal Wallace, the famous uh, producer, mm-hmm. and he hired Ayn Rand to write the screenplay. And... Um, most people don't even know that Ayn Rand was a screenwriter. She wrote uh, several movies during the, the early 40s, mid-40s. And um, so that, that, that alone would surprise people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she was hired to write the screenplay. And I trace, uh, again, as with the, uh, the beginning or the end, um, how it was developed, uh, her outlines. She actually got to sit down and interview Robert Oppenheimer twice, which is extraordinary. And... Um, and she developed, she wrote the first 50, 60 pages of the script. Uh, and Hal Wallace was so appalled but that he then sold out to MGM. So this battle of the titans for, to be the first to make a movie on the atomic bomb, which was very much hyped in the trades mm-hmm. and the New York Times and so forth, uh, ended, uh, ended suddenly with uh, Wallace getting the hell out of it. Uh, Ayn Rand then... Um, with some free time on her hands, sat down and wrote a little book called uh, Atlas Shrugged. Mm-hmm. And she based uh, one of the key characters on Oppenheimer. So she, uh, I guess she made out okay in the end. Yeah. Um, Oppenheimer is a major character in the book. Uh, and he seems to have been someone who either couldn't or wouldn't publicly divulge that he had made up his mind about the morality and ethics of all this is that yeah 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 well he was a famous uh famously conflicted and sometimes uh morally conflicted and um and so sometimes people uh see clips of him speaking or hear something about him and they think oh he was he became really anti-bomb uh and then you can see other things uh, him speaking where it seems like he was completely pro-bomb so so he kind of uh Kind of wanted to have it both ways, and uh, what the book shows is that he was the same way with this movie. He uh, made fun of it. He didn't want to be involved. He put them off, and then suddenly he sat down with the producer and eventually caved in and uh, signed a release, which allowed them to uh, portray him in the movie. And then he talked to friends and made fun of made fun of the movie and thought it was awful and everything else. And, and actually, it's a, a similar um, similar thing was going on with even the great Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, even wrote Louis B. Mayer and uh, twice, uh, rejecting uh, any attempt to involve him in the movie or, or have him be portrayed. And then uh, they kind of wore him down, and eventually he he signed the release. So uh, again, that's one of the subplots in the book is this continuing desperate effort to get the real life people to sign releases to MGM and get uh, and then get the, uh, not taken seriously in the movie itself. Well, uh, MGM wanted the releases so they could use the scientists names and uh, yeah. as attached to the characters that they created for these people. Yeah. 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 Well, one I mean there's actually a funny uh, a funny moment where MGM got so frustrated with uh, 
Oppenheimer dithering that they uh, changed his name in the script from Oppenheimer to Whittier. So uh, I guess they thought, uh, you know, the, about the most waspy name imaginable <laughs> would, mm-hmm. would, would, would distance the character the, the most from Oppenheimer. And then they changed it back. And they changed it back after they got his his from Enrico Fermi, the famous Italian immigrant scientist. Fermi had his name changed to Ramsey. So uh, you know, uh, but you know, you're you're a Hollywood uh, veteran, so uh, so uh, I'm sure this all uh, all rings plausible to you. Yeah, it rings more than plausible. I, one of the themes that really runs through the book is, to my reading of it the naivete of, of scientists about Hollywood and the movie industry. Yeah. They were shocked that cheesy romance would be inserted into this drama <laughs> about the creation of the world's first atomic bomb. And you'd think, yeah. well, how many movies had they seen in the previous 10 years? Yeah, right. That's right. Well, it was this movie for, for whatever else it may be, was an early example of uh, the docudrama, you know, which became a quite a hallowed g- genre to mm-hmm. this day. And so they did, um, they did try to make it, um, you know, follow the events if they could. And, but they did, in, as you mentioned, they did inject a couple love stories in there, totally made up characters and sappy, uh, sappy love stories as part of it. But you know, that's, I mean, that's a different criticism, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, my, my criticism or what I follow is the, the, the changes that General Groves and, and the White House ordered, uh, which was quite unprecedented at the time, ordered in the script and in the shooting. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the changes in the message of the movie, the changes in the facts, falsification, and it was all in the direction of, of not just justifying having nuclear weapons, but using them against Japan. Mm-hmm. So they, they acted, it was kind of odd because, uh, you know, public support was strong, but yet they acted completely defensive. They just were terrified that uh, the movie would raise any questions about the use of the bomb. So they went to extraordinary um, details to make sure the message was totally, uh, you know, totally backing Truman. And even if it meant... Uh, you know, falsifying, uh, falsifying history. You, you point out uh, that there was a, a, a version of the script that called for actually seeing some of the effects of the bomb in Hiroshima in terms of seeing the, the effects on humans there. And that, of course, was uh, taken out at the government's insistence. And, and another cross-current that you deal with in the book that, that certainly impacts on the thinking of a lot of the scientists involved, most particularly Oppenheimer, was the Red Scare that was going on at the time. Right, right. Yeah, this overla- well, it overlaps with the coming of the, the blacklist. In fact, there's a little section in the book that just, uh, you know, in the, the same summer that this movie was, was getting uh, revised, let's say, <laughs> um, was the very beginning of the Hollywood blacklist. Uh, Billy Wilkerson, who was the owner of the Hollywood Reporter, published the first list of alleged uh, alleged commies in the Hollywood Reporter, and uh, and then six months later, a year later, it, it really exploded, so so to speak. So there was this incredible fear of a direction that Hollywood might be going, but but the interventions in this movie started before then. Uh, I, I can't really say that the 
uh, e- even though the FBI thought Oppenheimer might have been a red and uh, Einstein and Leo Zillard and other scientists. And were, they were wiretapping uh, Oppenheimer. Yeah, they, they were opening um, Einstein's mail. Mm. They were uh, following Leo Zillard in the street, you know, and they were following Oppenheimer and tapping his phone. And so that there's actually a... A scene in the book where we have, we have Oppenheimer talking to his wife from across the country about this movie and, you know, kind of making fun of the movie and so forth, all from a FBI uh, transcript. So you, you got to you. How did you get uh, access to FBI transcripts, by the way? They're I mean, they're at the Library of Congress. Really? Um, it's very extensive. There, there's four or five I uh, I quote from in the book. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's pretty extensive. But of course, they this was not the focus of the FBI probe. Mm-hmm. And as you know. As you know, uh, what began that year uh, led to Oppenheimer's uh, uh, eventually losing his security clearance mm-hmm. and all the, the famous, uh, you know, his famous fall from fall from grace and mm-hmm. uh, the terrible final years of his life. So this all started uh, all started in this period. It is, as I mentioned earlier, fascinating to me the the uh, nexus between. Uh, the entertainment business and the government business as depicted in the frequent back and forths of individuals connected with this uh, Mr. Marx, the, was he the producer of, of uh, Sam Marx, Sam yeah. Marx, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. his frequent shuttling back and forth with uh, new versions of the script to consult with General Groves. And then, as you say, President Truman, I have to say, this is about the most unimpressive portrait I've ever read of uh, Harry S. Truman. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I should say thank you. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the book itself seriously looks at the the use of the bomb and what happened after afterward and uh, government, you might call it cover-up and, mm-hmm. and so forth. So I do go back and... Um, Offer what I think I think is a very you know powerful and, and fresh look at the decision to use the bomb and what Truman did, how he made the decision, how General Groves manipulated him. General Groves called him. Uh, of course, Truman had just come to the White House because FDR had just died. Mm-hmm. So, and Truman was uh, people thought was not really equipped for the office. Um, he had been a and, haberdasher uh, until he was elected yeah, to the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was not not an impressive figure, not a particularly confident figure and so forth. So, you know, Groves compared him to uh, like a little boy on a toboggan. And uh, so Groves and the other aides were able to deeply influence his um, his decision to use the bomb, uh, the, even the information that was given to him. And, and so I, I do go through that. It's not you know, the book is not mainly about the decision to use the bomb. You know, there's been 100 books written mm-hmm. about that. But but I think the. The, the using this movie um, and the changes in the script and all these documents, you know, I have all kinds of letter, you know, White House letters and the scripts they marked up. And and, of course, Groves, hundreds of pages of uh, memo letters and uh, uh, script revisions from Groves and, and so on and so forth, able to use this unique uh, research through, a, you know, a Hollywood entertainment to tell what has been kind of uh one of the obsessive uh, interests of my career, which is the uh, you know the use of the bomb against Japan and and how America then dealt with it. So this was uh, to me this is a great way to get at that without hitting people over the head mm-hmm. with uh, you know a six hundred page uh, academic 
uh, study. Tome. Yeah. So I think in 280 pages, you can get, uh, I think, I think one of the best uh, portrayals of of the of how the why the bomb was used and and why it was uh, covered up afterwards, uh, along with this Hollywood uh, uh, nonsense and uh, uh, Donna Reed and uh, you know all the others. You go through in a in a toward the end of the book the the uh, the saga of how Hollywood dealt in later years how the 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 winds blew one way and then the other as Hollywood uh, belatedly grappled with this subject again fail safe seven days in May and of course right. mm-hmm. Dr. Strangelove which was the first the other two were sort of just like let's get scared movies but Dr. Strangelove was the first one I think that really said holy crap yeah, <laughs> about yeah, all this, yeah. in a really amazingly funny and smart way how would you compare the movie government nexus that you depict in uh, your book, the beginning or the end, with what we know and think went on during the making of Zero Dark Thirty, much more recently? Yeah, well, that was one of the better recent, uh, fairly recent examples of where uh, the movie came out, and you know, people thought it was a you know a terrific movie. And the director, you know, I think won the Academy Award for mm-hmm. Best Director and so forth. And then it started to filter out that um, they had had you know tremendous back and forth, let's say, with the CIA and others. guidance, guidance, yeah, they... in the making, yeah, yeah, in the making of the movie. And, and you know, it came out belatedly, I think, uh, and so it was the movie was already kind of established as uh, well. This is a good movie and all that. Um, and you know, I know I wrote stuff at the time. A lot of other people did after after this really came out. They were quite appalled, but the, you know, the media tended, the mainstream media tended to just say, "Well, this is interesting, but it doesn't, um, you know, it's, it's nothing to get that alarmed about." Mm-hmm. It, it was kind of high, relatively high profile, and, and we don't, we still don't know really how many dozens of other examples there are like this because it takes a lot to come out. I, I know the. One of the biggest concerns that people have always raised is that to make most of these war movies, you know, you have to deal with the Pentagon and get permission to use the equipment and uh, airfields and bombers and everything else. That If it's just a usual rah-rah war movie mm-hmm. um, or if it's a tremendously pro-American uh, type of movie, no one cares, you know. But if, if, if it's a movie that raises questions or is meant to raise questions – and then you have to deal with the military for permissions to use stuff. It gets very dicey. And I think it's one reason why there are relatively few real, what you want to call, honest anti-war or questioning uh, type movies. The, the other amazing thing is that in the 75 years, Hollywood has only made three movies on this subject of the making in the bomb and using the bomb. Mm-hmm. First one was The Beginning or the End, which we're talking about. Uh, about five years later, they made a MGM made a second movie that uh, very similar in outlook, uh, focusing on Paul Tibbetts, the pilot of the Enola Gay, which dropped the bomb over Hiroshima. It was almost a remake, really. <laughs> and then uh, it took another forty years for Roland Roland Joffe, who directed uh, the Killing Fields and other movies, to make a movie called Fat Man and Little Boy, mm-hmm. which. Um, also did not do well at the box office, but his the mistake he made was that he cast Paul Newman as General Groves, and uh, 
a guy named Dwight Schultz as Oppenheimer. So it was a little, <laughs> little imbalance. Even though Joff, Joffe told me uh, that you know he meant this to be kind of a anti-bomb movie, that just the casting of Newman alone mm-hmm. threw that out of whack. So, yeah. but the, my point is that seventy-five years, three movies on the subject on one of the you know most important events certainly in our our history and with tremendous echoes today because yeah. you know i i understand why there you know pandemic is getting all the attention and black lives matter and 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 climate change but people forget or they there maybe some young people are not aware you know that we still have 5000 nuclear weapons at on alert uh, even a handful could destroy the world and uh, and the U.S. still has a first-use policy. Uh, most people are surprised to hear that. It's official U.S. policy to use nuclear weapons first, not just retaliating. If the president fears that we're, we're under threat or there's a conventional war and we want to end it. And, of course, tr- with Trump as president, one has some additional concerns about that. But that's why this subject, to me, even though it's, you could say 75 years ago, who cares about an old movie? Who cares? If, you, know, you can't change the fact that we killed you know, 200,000 people in these two cities. But the fact is, um, this is a precedent for today. This is what the, the media, still the vast majority of the media, the vast majority of officials and politicians and everyone else, every summer wring their hands and say we you know we we shouldn't use nuclear weapons again but hey you know the two times we use them were 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 swell mm-hmm. and you know we're seeing it again this year already and um you mean you as, know, this, as the anniversary of uh, yeah yeah and so it sets so it's sort of like saying we can't use nuclear weapons but here's two exceptions and they and, and we're we're okay with them yeah and, uh, and well, that's I'm, the message to the world i mean we're we're Although we're not really aware of it in this country, we're at a moment right now where two adjacent nuclear powers are having a border <laughs> right. kerfuffle, let's call it, yeah. China yeah. and India. India has also been in, involved in continuing military conflict with another nuclear power that it's bordered with, Pakistan. Right. Um, and, and AQ Khan, of course, was the great nuclear proliferator of the late 20th century, the reason right. why mm-hmm. uh, Colonel Gaddafi had nuclear capability as well as uh, arguably North Korea. Every once in a while, it kind of rears its head and, and scares the pants off you one more time. I have to say, I had the op- opportunity a couple of years ago to um, visit Nagasaki and uh, to go to the Nagasaki A-bomb Museum, as I believe is the correct name of it, Mm-hmm. And uh, you, as you point out in the book, Nagasaki is really the forgotten story of all this because no matter what you think about dropping the bomb on Hiroshima, Nagasaki was really the bomb that didn't have to be dropped. Right. The most revealing thing of all is that uh, the movie, uh, as it went along, uh, they cut every mention of Nagasaki out of the script. Mm-hmm. So you could watch watch this movie tonight if you if you dare. Uh, <laughs> And you will, uh, you know, you wouldn't even know that we used a second bomb. So it, it shows how sensitive uh, this is. Or as you as you say, many people um, accept uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and they feel Nagasaki was a war crime. Um, and um, I think the book lays that out mm-hmm. uh, pretty well. Yeah, it, it's interesting to see that done at the museum from the Japanese point of view. It is done with great 
delicacy, delicacy and mm-hmm. sensitivity and honesty. And, and those three don't often go together anywhere in public. Um, but it, it's remarkable to see that. As it is to have read the book, uh, Greg Mitchell, it's a fascinating book. And, and, and yet, because of the Hollywood shenanigans, also weirdly fun, uh, if, if one could say that about <laughs> that subject. But um, I want to excuse myself by saying I, the, at my age, Donna Reed was basically the woman who pranced through a doorway at the beginning of her own t- uh, eponymous TV show every, every week. That's what I didn't watch. <laughs> Uh, but uh, to be fair, it wasn't made for me. Uh, Greg Mitchell, author of uh, The Beginning or the End. Uh, and we still don't know the answer to that question, right? Yeah, so I guess we don't. No. Stay tuned. Yes. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank, well, thank you, Harry. I appreciate it.
from New Orleans, this is Le Show. And now, on a related subject. Well, here's news from California, which is a hot spot for more than uh, the COVID thing. The Coastal Commission out there, they have jurisdiction over the coast. Hence the name. This week they approved an inspection and maintenance program. It's part of a permit that will allow Southern California Edison to place canisters in a storage site on the beach. What kind of canisters? Well, Edison used to operate the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station. That's a nuclear power plant. It shuttered some years ago, and uh, then they got to deal with the waste they created there. I, you know, why, why, would you, why would you have to deal with your waste? That sounds grown-up to me. But anyway, the commission okayed a program at starting in about four years, will inspect two spent fuel storage canisters every five years. That should make you feel safer, doesn't it? And inspect a test canister at San Onofre every two and a half years. The program also calls for Edison to put a metallic overlay on the canisters using robotic devices in case canisters get scratched, even if it's by the robotic devices, I guess. The um, commission reluctantly okayed this storage plan, the canisters on the beach. Well, the plant was built by the beach, so why not store the waste there? This is in 2015. That was part of that uh, decision because San Onofre stores its waste on its premises. The federal government has not yet opened a repository where you could send the fuel. Like, that's the federal government's job. Okay. But they didn't do it because um, they'd picked a site in Yucca Valley in Nevada, and the Nevada politicians and the people in Nevada didn't want that, want that there. This permit includes a, that was approved this week includes a special condition that allows the commission to revisit whether the storage site should be moved to another location in case of rising sea levels, earthquake risks, potential canister damage, or other scenarios. They can revisit the whole, should we have this here? Uh, uh, by 2035. The um, commission had told Edison to pay for an independent third-party review of its inspector program for canister storage. A consulting firm was hired, made res- recommendations that included enhancements in inspections for any flaws and scratches on the canisters. Edison agreed. Coastal Commission staff recommended approving the new plan making sure the canisters will remain in physical condition sufficient to allow them to be sent elsewhere once there's an elsewhere. Many of the commissioners, though they voted for this thing, said they aren't happy about it. Quote, this type of material has no business being the coastal zone of California, said one. It is a no-win, I think, for all of us, but I think under the circumstances, voting yes is the right step. Good, sir, good hot surfing. Commissioner Dane Bochco said, I think we're all trying to push as hard as possible to get the federal government to step up and do what they should have done 40 or 50 years ago. Unquote. Sound familiar? 
Edison plans to eventually dismantle the two spent storage pools where highly radioactive fuel rods go to be cooled before being placed into the canisters. Opponents of Edison say the 40-foot deep pools should stay in case anything goes wrong with the canisters. Edison's officials have said returning a damaged canister to a pool poses more risks in terms of increased radiation dose to workers, potential radiation releases or damage to fuel rods, than repairing a canister through remote welding or nesting the canister into another one that's larger. Russian nesting canisters. Some medicine critics said the uh, outside report amounted to wishful thinking. Others called for more frequent inspections to make sure the stainless steel canisters don't corrode or crack. Uh, Edison rep said stress corrosion cracking is unlikely, especially given the fabrication materials in our canister, and it's a very slow-growing process for a crack to initiate and a crack to propagate. So should something occur, says the Edison spokesman, there's more than enough time to uh, identify it. The Edison plant is home to about 3.5 million pounds of used-up nuclear fuel, just a portion of the 80,000 metric tons of waste at commercial reactors across the country. So there's plenty of waste to go around, should we need it. Now, this is your brain on the war on drugs. A state Supreme Court Chief Justice in South Carolina has ordered state judges and magistrates to stop issuing no-knock search warrants to police. So with those kinds of warrants, a squad of police can show up at a house without any warning, use a battering ram to smash in a door if they suspect a potentially violent suspect might destroy evidence or start a gun fight if given even a few seconds warning. But the March killing of an unarmed Kentucky woman, Breonna Taylor, shot to death in her bed by police who used a no-knock warrant has attracted national attention. Police learned only after shooting her eight times that the information used to enter the house was outdated. They were seeking drugs. There were no drugs in the house. This is your brain on the war on drugs. And now, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Dateline Douglas County, Colorado, the chairman of the Douglas County Republican Committee has issued an apology after the Facebook page for the party posted an offensive cartoon. However, a couple of days later, the apology was removed or taken down from the Facebook page. The cartoon depicts what looks like law enforcement labeled as Polis, that's the name of the Colorado governor, stepping on the neck of a man wearing a mask labeled Colorado with the caption, We Can't Breathe. original post was deleted shortly after publication, but quickly gained attention beginning of this week. The, uh, one of the county commissioners publicly condemned the cartoon beginning of the week. The county sheriff said the leadership of the Douglas County Republican Party responsible for this posting should resign immediately. The Republican chairman said... As chairman, I'm responsible for the content of our social media and I apologize to anyone that was offended by the post. We're currently reviewing our edit- editorial policies with regard to content and access to our social media platforms. Allen, 
the uh, chairman of the Republican committee, the man who posted it, did not say anything about resigning. Yet. In a lengthy Facebook message posted this week, Nick Cannon apologized to the Jewish community for his recent inflammatory anti-Semitic remarks. That's the description of the remarks by Vanity Fair magazine. He also stood, stood firm against Viacom CBS, which terminated its relationship with him over Cannon's comments. And uh, he insisted that the corporation give him the rights to his lucrative long-running comedy series, Wild and Out. You've heard of it, right? Wild and Out. You've heard of it, right? I, somebody has, because it's lucrative. I demand full ownership of my billion-dollar Wild and Out brand that I created, and they will continue to misuse and destroy without my leadership, he wrote. This is Nick Cannon. You've heard of him, right? He also pushed back on Viacom CBS's apparent claim he didn't t- attempt to make amends after his remarks went viral, saying he even... Tried to reach out to the chair of the uh, company, but didn't hear back from her. That's when I realized they didn't want a conversation or growth. They wanted to put the young Negro in his place, Cannon wrote. He came in under fire after an episode of his podcast went viral. In it, he said, black people are the true Hebrews. You can't be anti-Semitic when we are the Semitic people, he said. When we are the same people they want to be, that's our birthright. He also discussed conspiracy theories about the Rothschild family and espoused the teachings of Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan. After the remarks began circulating, Cannon issued a statement, I have no hate in my heart, nor malice intentions. I do not condone hate speech, nor the spread of hateful rhetoric. Viacom CBS terminated its relationship with him. He's been involved in network projects since the late 90s when he got on a Nickelodeon series. Company uh, issued a statement. Cannon now demands an apology from the company. But he said, I must apologize to my Jewish brothers and sisters for putting them in such a painful position, which was never my intention, but I know this whole situation has hurt many people, and together we will make it right. He's announcing he will soon be making a trip to Israel to receive teachings, lessons, and truth about the Jewish history. Hang with Nate and I, not Netanyahu for a while, Nick. And on the same subject, Utah Jazz two-way guard Justin Wright Foreman apologized this week for tweeting a post that supported Nick Cannon's recent anti-Semitic remarks. I wasn't educated enough on the topic, Wright Foreman said. I apologize. I did not mean to offend anybody. Those are not my beliefs and values. I just want to say once again, I apologize. The original retweet that he posted, said, Nick Cannon said nothing wrong. Everyone just sensitive and hates the truth, unquote. A BBC presenter uh, has, and I'm just uh, checking my reference here, a BBC presenter has apologized over comments she made during the Welsh government's daily press conference. I, you know what, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to share this one with you, if you would uh, be so appreciative, next week. And I have more information on it. We'll move along to ABC Australia, not ABC America. It's a different thing. It's a different ABC. There's more than one. When you learn your ABCs, there is, there's a reason it's plural. plural. 
an on-air apology over an anti-Semitic slur made by a talkback caller on an episode of an ABC radio program in Australia has been welcomed by the Australian Jewish Affairs Council. In the, in the broadcast in May, the caller said she managed a factory in the 80s which employed so many people when I was working, they were worried sick that this big Jew was going to buy it out, buy us out and blow me down. Eventually he did and he broke and he sold all our machinery and everything went over to, he sold it over to China. Following an investigation, ABC audience and consumer affairs accepted that the uh, committee was justifying complaining over the comments. The slur was heard by the presenter, Ian McNamara. He'd made a non-air apology in June, but the ABC apologized for the oversight that let this remark go to air. It has been removed from our podcast of that program. You will not hear the reference to the big Jew. Dateline Asheville, North Carolina, in an extraordinary move, the Asheville City Council has apologized for that city's historic role in slavery, discrimination, and denial of basic liberties to black residents. And the Asheville City Council has voted to provide reparations to them and their descendants. The vote was seven to nothing. Hundreds of years of black blood spilled that basically fills the cup we drink from today, said one councilman, one of the two African-American members of the body, and the chief proponent of the measure. It is simply not enough to remove statues. Black people in this country are dealing with issues that are systemic in nature, he says. The unanimously passed resolution does not mandate direct payments. Instead, it will make investments in areas where black residents face disparities. Just for historical perspective, reparations have been paid in this country. They were paid to former slave owners for the loss of their property. I now have the information I was lacking a moment ago on the uh, story of the BBC presenter. Apologized over a comment she made during the Welsh government's daily press conference. Carrie Gracie sparked fury from some viewers when they heard her say she hoped they don't do more Welsh ahead of the first minister's statement. He's the prime minister. Others claimed she laughed when he spoke Welsh during the conference. Miss Gracie then took to Twitter saying, she should have chosen her words more carefully, writing her apology in Welsh. I've watched that clip back now. While broadcasting live yesterday, I made some unscripted comments on air. Having watched the program again, I realized I should have chosen my words more carefully. There was no intention to offend anyone, and I apologized that that happened. And that she wrote in Welsh, and a machine replied in Welsh. Which is apology accepted in Welsh. The union representing Cambridge, Massachusetts police patrolmen removed part of a Facebook post that threatened a purge and then apologized, noting the post did not refer to violence, and it has been misconstrued as such. So let's reconstrue it. In a shocking never-before video, L.A. Dodger Tommy Lasorda is seen telling a fan, go back where you came from. I think this needs the appropriate fake baseball crowd. Do we have the fake baseball crowd? No, we don't. All right. I can deal with that. Tommy Lasorda, then 90, said, to you're from where? The fan responds to Korea. Lasorda asked, then why don't you go back there? Video was taken in April 2018 in Dodger Stadium. He's a living legend to uh, Dodger fans. You know who isn't. We really don't have the baseball crowd. That's such a disappointment. Anyway, he's been part of the Dodgers organization forever. The anonymous videographer, a Dodger fan since the 60s, had initially felt conflicted about releasing the video to the public. 
I was blown off by a Dodger office. A spokesperson for the Dodgers said, We were deeply disturbed by Tommy's comments from this 2018 incident. His comments have no place in our society, and the Dodgers do not condone or support them in any way. Tommy's actions in this video do not reflect our values, Dodger values. Lasorda also sent out an apology himself, which stated, I'm sorry for my actions, which don't represent who I am. Well, who are you? And who represents that? Who who elected your representative? The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. runs this place. Oh, that's right. I do. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the show. Back next week at the same time on these radio stations. Radio. And whenever you want it on your audio device of choice. And it'd be just like not dropping the bomb on Nagasaki if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh. Tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO for help with today's program. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer, and you can get the uh, playlist of music heard here, and maybe even buy a Cars I Talk t-shirt or two at harryshearer.com. And in parting, just remember these words of wisdom from our president. The kidney has a very special place in the heart. And he's not even a doctor, and he knows that. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions. It originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the Crescent City. Stay safe. <laughs>